Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are biblical, theological, historical, literary. Maybe one day we'll get into the cinematic, but right now we're going to delve into the philosophy of history and see how it may apply. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In this podcast, I'm going to offer a Christian perspective on the post-9-11 world, what I'm calling the New World Disorder. I have three theses, and I'm going to present the first one today. It regards what I call the shattering event. Country singer Alan Jackson asked in a song, Where were you when the world stopped turning that September day? All of us who were old enough to retain memories will remember it vividly for the rest of our lives. I had met in a coffee house with some university students for an early morning Bible study. It was a beautiful morning in College Station, Texas, and as it was in New York City and most of the United States. It was sunny, clear, and mild. When I got home, I turned on the television to a cable news channel. It took me a minute to figure out what was going on. It was live coverage of a fire in one of the World Trade Center buildings. Reporters were talking about a plane crashing into the building. They were piecing together facts and reports and raising questions whether it was a small plane or a jet liner, whether it was an accident or, unthinkably, a deliberate act. It was all very strange and fascinating to watch, but still not terribly alarming. And we had become all too accustomed to seeing disturbing and violent pictures on our television screens. And then the second jet liner tore through the twin skyscraper. It's beyond description to see that and realize that you're witness to the instantaneous death of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. It was instantly apparent that New York City and the United States were under attack. Immediately, the news coverage took on a new tone. The government took on a new posture. And we, the people, experienced a sense of real pit-of-the-stomach awfulness as we waited helplessly to see what would happen next. It was a feeling that most of us had never had before, but those who were around when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor talked about having flashbacks to December 7, 1941. And then our nation's capital was attacked as the third hijacked airliner dove into the Pentagon. And still another plane crashed somewhere in Pennsylvania, interrupted in the course planned by the terrorists, as it turns out, by the heroic stand of its doomed passengers. It's no exaggeration to say that it was a day that shook the world. I think almost everyone had a sense that everything had changed and that nothing would ever be the same again. It's my thesis that the world did change on September 11, 2001, and that 9-11 was the day that the 21st century truly began. Now, I realize that these words may sound trite, And if I meant them as a merely sentimental expression, the statement would indeed be a mere cliché and not a serious point of discussion, but I do not put it forward for its emotional impact. I believe that what I've just said is true and meaningful as a statement of historical interpretation. I do believe that the course of human history was redirected on 9-11-01, and that it is the date of the true beginning of the 21st century. And I also believe that it's important for Christians to know so and to understand why it is so. God has placed us at a crucial turning point in history. 
and he has laid upon us the obligation of living for him and representing the lordship of his son at such a time as this. In First Chronicles 12, there is a description of how the tribes of Israel rallied behind David to be king after the collapse of the house of King Saul. Verse 32 contains a fascinating note about one of the smallest tribes, Issachar, who despite their few numbers made a significant contribution to David's cause. And it says that they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. May God grant to us understanding of our own times so that we may know what we should do. To that end, I'm pursuing a study of the impact of 9-11 on our generation, along with a projection of what it will mean to the generations to follow. And my first offering in that study deals with the subject, the shattering event. My first point is that September 11, 2001, was the effective beginning of the much ballyhooed new millennium. Far from being the age of Aquarius envisioned by New Age dreamers, harmony and understanding, sympathy and love abounding and all that, the oncoming era will reveal new developments in ancient, unsettled conflicts. I further suggest to you that the terrorist attack on that bloody day was neither a fluke nor a mere blip on the radar screen of history. Rather, it is the herald of the kind of world we have lived in since and will be living in for a good while. In particular, the shocking attack and devastation of the World Trade Center and all the social and political repercussions that continue to issue from it constitute something I call a shattering event. Let me first explain what I mean when I say that September 11, 2001 was the first day of the 21st century. There are two ways of defining the periods of human history. One is to fit human events into a strictly chronological grid. So we bracket the lives and events of the 20th century between 1901 and 2000, or if you prefer the popular idea, between 1900 and 1999, it makes little difference. This kind of chronicle is useful as an index for locating times and sequence, but it doesn't do much to help our understanding. I mean, what, after all, does the fact that an event happened in a particular year or century have to do with its causes and effects? Unless we believe in astrology, and we don't, the date on which an event even occurs is the least significant thing about the event. The other way to divide history is by the events themselves looking for those happenings and episodes that had the greatest impact on society and mankind in general and seemed to mark turning points in human affairs. And now the question arises, which events and what kind? Well, some point to invention as markers for the boundaries of history. Perhaps then the 20th century began in 1903. That's when the Wright brothers staged the first successful flight of a heavier-than-air flying machine. The impact of that invention went way beyond the crucial field of transportation. It was a boundary-breaking invention that expanded the imagination of mankind. If man can fly, what else might be possible for him to achieve, both for better and for worse? It could also be argued that discovery is the appropriate standard for marking time. And if discovery is our criterion, then surely 1905 is the true beginning of the 20th century. That is the year 
that Einstein laid out the theory of relativity. It was not apparent at the time. But the formula E equals mc squared changed pretty much everything, at least everything the mind can think about. However, I think the most cogent and understandable way of interpreting history is to examine the events that have had the greatest influence on the current of human affairs, that in themselves become the signature of an era. Alas, most of those events tend to be traumatic ones. I'm not thinking primarily about natural disasters, although hurricanes, floods, and earthquakes may have enormous, even global, impact. And neither do I refer here to spectacular man-made disasters, like the sinking of the Titanic. Now, our attention should be directed, rather, to events that reveal deep-seated, broad-based conflicts. Conflict is, after all, the stuff all stories are made of, and history is, first of all, a story. Not to mention the fact that it both spawns and makes dreadful use of marvelous inventions and amazing discoveries. Consider, for example, the importance of aircraft to 20th century warfare and of the theory of relativity to the development of weapons of mass destruction. By this way of reading history, the 20th century as a historical period perhaps began in earnest in August 1914 with what seemed at first like a singular small-time act of political terrorism. The assassination of an Austrian archduke lit a short-burning fuse that exploded in the First World War, which in turn completely rearranged the map of Europe, Africa, and Asia. The war also set the stage for a worldwide economic depression, a Second World War, and a Cold War, all directed by issues that dominated the lives of virtually everyone who lived during that time. The point is, the 20th century as a time marker began with the rotation of the Earth and the completion of another revolution around the Sun, and hence the rollover another, of another date. But the character of the issues with which those who lived in that century had to deal was more truly revealed not by the calendar, but by that generation's first great trauma in human relations, the First World War. And to return to the starting point, all the anxiety and apocalyptic dread about the arrival of the year 2000 proved to be a non-issue. Uh, does anybody remember the Y2K computer bug? Exactly my point. The calendar changed from 1999 to 2000 and then from 2000 to 2001 without much happening to distinguish one year from another. Oh, there were conflicts and disasters aplenty, but there was nothing epoch-making, nothing particularly new. Everything was trending along the way it was going. When members of a terrorist network called Al-Qaeda attacked New York City and Washington, D.C. on September 11, 2001, the world changed and the 21st century as a historical period truly began. To call the trauma of that day a shattering event is not a generalization, it's something specific. First, I want to define what the concept means and then how it applies to 9-11. First, what is a shattering event and how does it change society and culture? To call the Al-Qaeda attack of 9-11 a shattering event is not a statement of its emotional impact, but rather of its historical impact. And to explain what this means, let's look to an illustration from world history. In AD 70, 
four Roman legions under General Titus breached the wall of Jerusalem, killed its Jewish defenders, and completely destroyed the temple, razed it to the ground. All that was left and yet remains of it was a small section of the western face of the retaining wall, not even part of the temple itself. This is the famous Wailing Wall, where faithful Jews and many others still return to pour out their hearts and offer supplications to God. Forty years earlier, Jesus had foretold the coming war and the destruction of the temple, and went so far as to say not one stone would be left standing on another, and his words were literally fulfilled. The prophecy was inconceivable to his disciples, and they immediately concluded that such an event must be the end of the age and the herald of the final day of judgment. Well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was not quite as momentous as the disciples thought it would be. We are, after all, still awaiting the second coming and the final judgment. Even so, it was an event that changed the course of history. A survey of 500 church historians by the Christian History Institute identified this event as number one of the 25 most important events after the composition of the New Testament in the history of Christianity. Now, why was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple such an important event? In his book, Turning Points, historian Mark Knoll explains. He says, from the perspective of the very earliest Christians, Roman decimation of Jerusalem probably seemed like an unspeakable tragedy. Christianity was born in the cradle of Jerusalem. The Gospels were written in large part as a demonstration of the way that Jesus brought Israel's earlier history to its culmination. Other early Christian writings that would also become part of the New Testament were preoccupied with negotiating the boundaries between Judaism and Christianity. The great turning point represented by the destruction of Jerusalem was to move Christianity outward, to transform it from a religion shaped in nearly every particular by its early Jewish environment into a religion advancing toward universal significance in the broader reaches of the Mediterranean world and then beyond. Professor Knoll concludes, The blows that the Roman generals rained upon Jerusalem liberated the church for its destiny as a universal religion offered to the whole world. In other words, the year of our Lord's seventy marked an abrupt change in both the nature and the self-image of the Christian church. Before seventy, Christianity was a Jewish sect with an increasing number of Gentiles swelling its ranks. After seventy, Christianity was a Gentile movement of faith, with a rapidly shrinking number of Jews. The whole center of gravity for Christianity changed from Jerusalem, where the Lord died and rose, to Rome, where the apostles Paul and Peter were martyred. Moreover, we're not dealing merely with the effect of this event on the religious history of Judaism and Christianity. The rise of Christianity as a universal movement set off something like a historical chain reaction. The subsequent history of Western civilization would become virtually synonymous with the history of the Christian Church until the modern era. To this day, the secular Western world still numbers the years of our lives grudgingly by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. They concede it with the label CE for common era. Even in a day in which faith in the Lordship of Christ wanes in the West, it appears to be spreading rapidly on the continents of Africa, Asia, and South America. My point here 
is that the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple is a prime example of a shattering event. Now let me propose a definition. A shattering event is an acute crisis in human affairs that marks a great divide between historical eras. It marks this great divide not only through the direct and indirect consequences that follow, but also through its symbolic power as an emblem of greater issues and conflicts. All human life is punctuated by crises of one kind or another, and every crisis jolts us. Every crisis imposes some kind of change in our behavior and outlook. What's in view here are those events that mark truly profound changes. Shattering events of this definition can occur on every level of human existence, the lives of individuals, families, communities, nations, the world. By definition, they are rare. They stand out because they change us in fundamental ways. They, they, they change the circumstances of our lives and even the way we look at ourselves. They call forth both the best and the worst elements of ourselves. They force us to make changes that we otherwise would not make, and in that way they mold us into something that we would not otherwise become. Moreover, a shattering event is more than just a turning point. Not all turning points constitute a shattering event. With a shattering event, something is being shattered or brought down. A turning point may represent an invitation or a call to a new way of life. A shattering event is a forced eviction from a previous way of life. There are three factors that elevate a particular crisis above other common crises of our lives and enable us to identify it as a shattering event. First, the event itself is momentous in its own right as an occurrence in history. One way to gauge this is to ask, where were you when this happened? These are the days when you can remember every detail about where you were and what you were doing when it happened or when you heard about it. Why? Because even if it didn't happen to you personally, it affected your life deeply, along with the lives of perhaps millions of others. A world-class shattering event will have a direct impact on the lives of a significant segment of the human population. Second, the event acts as a catalyst. It sets in motion other issues that aren't necessarily directly related to the event itself. Now, it may put an end to one human conflict, but it also seems to trigger another. Th this point, I'm not referring only to changes that are directly caused by the event. Shattering events tend to gather together the combined force of a number of related conflicts that have been quietly stewing and launch others that have already been actively brewing. So, it becomes a catalyst for wider developments. And third, the event takes on a symbolic significance for issues larger than the event itself. Symbolic significance, that term that I'm using here, refers to more than just the immediate emotional response that people have toward the event or the fact that it may linger in most people's memory. People do remember the facts of what happened quite vividly, but they also associate those facts with images that seem to relate to and explain other things that are happening around them. 
the shattering event becomes an emblem for a movement in history, a moment in history. It's a signpost that people look to and say, after this, everything changed. Now, as I stated, a shattering event can occur on any level. For an individual, it doesn't have to be a a tragedy, necessarily. It may mean the shattering of illusions or the breaking down of barriers, and, and that's not inherently a bad thing. I can personally identify a few such events in my own life that profoundly affected me and were used by God to shape my life and my faith. Romans 8.28 comes to mind. All things, even shocking, shattering events, work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Beyond the sphere of individual and family experiences and into the larger spheres of community, it's apparent that shattering events take on an increasingly negative connotation. And that's because they're almost always associated with some kind of disillusionment or conflict. I once served a church where the death of an elder deeply affected the church and drastically changed its direction. Beyond the grief, many seemed to be dealing with bitter disappointment that God had not answered their prayers for His healing. The church eventually split, And afterwards, I looked back and observed how many conflicts began to surface following the death of this man. In my estimation, his death was, for that church, a shattering event. An event doesn't have to be defined as a single incident or circumstance. It may also be inclusive of a major conflict or period of crisis. I mentioned the First World War. The Great Depression certainly stands out as a grand-scale shattering event. The Civil War comprises a shattering event made up of many shattering events, climaxed by the assassination of Lincoln, a shattering event in its own right. Single-episode shattering events are relatively rare, however. Until September 11th, I think, the greatest single shattering event in my lifetime was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and it meets all three criteria. Not only was the event itself a national trauma, it also heralded a decade of turbulence, and it marked the death of modern optimism. It opened the front door to one of the stormiest ten-year periods in American history, one that finally seemed to close with the Watergate scandal and the resignation of a president, a shattering event in its own right. And meanwhile, we were soon shocked by the slayings of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Jr., raising the question whether America would descend to an era governed by political assassinations. The Vietnam War divided the nation and its generations, while urban riots stirred fears of racial revolution. In fact, there was a revolution of a very different type in ferment. A generation that was coming of age in 1963 effectively rejected the slain president's inaugural call to ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Instead, he began listening to voices encouraging them to tune in, turn on, and drop out. This was, I believe, the true beginning of the postmodern movement that came to prominence in the late 20th century and is still with us today. Its hallmarks include rejection of authority, 
rejection of objective and verifiable truth, and a quest for subjective personal experience. Perhaps all this is why there's been so much long-lasting fascination, speculation, and skepticism surrounding Kennedy's death. American society was so drastically altered in the aftermath of the killing that it's hard to believe that it was done by a lone gunman. We start looking for a conspiracy to reassure us that surely someone otherwise inconsequential, like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, can't change our lives that much. In world history, we can look to a number of collective events that may rightly be called grand-scale shattering events. The Black Plague, the French Revolution, the two world wars of the 20th century. All these events, however, are actually names that encompass myriad events and span several years. I would offer, however, one case study to show how a singular event can fit the three criteria named above. It was the climactic event of the Second World War, the destruction of the Japanese city of Hiroshima by the atomic bomb in August of 1945. The follow-up attack on Nagasaki did not so much constitute a separate shattering event as it did to extend the impact of the first one, though hence the two attacks are usually referred to together. In the first place, the event directly affected the lives of a significant segment of the human population on a large scale. Now, this refers both to the primary effects of the event itself and the collateral repercussions of the event. When the first nuclear weapons were used, obviously the devastation that occurred in the targeted cities was terrible beyond description. Vast numbers of men, women, and children perished in an instant, and thousands of others remained to suffer hideous effects of radiation. The toll in human life, real property, and regional ecology was monstrous. But it was not unheard of in time of war. I mean, why was the destruction of these cities different in kind from the dreadful devastation of London during the Blitz or the firebombing of Dresden by the Allies or from the devastation of the Japanese that the Japanese themselves wreaked upon Manchuria, for that matter? It's because an entire city was turned to ashes and rubble in one instant by one weapon with astonishingly little effort of delivery. One airplane, one bomb, one minute, and a great city and its population were wiped off the face of the earth. It still takes the breath away just to contemplate it, especially in light of the fact that the two bombs that were dropped were mere dwarfs compared to the weapons developed afterwards. Certainly, the bombing exacted a heavy toll of thousands killed and tens of thousands maimed for life, including civilian non-combatants and innocent children. And for this reason, it's been considered by some not merely an act of war, but a war crime, a, an atrocity. However, the moral line cannot be drawn so simply, even with the benefit of historical perspective. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were chosen as targets because of their material support for the Japanese war effort. Yet clearly, the direct efforts of that foretaste of nuclear holocaust went far beyond the destruction of two Japanese industrial cities. U.S. forces had driven Japanese imperial forces back to their own mainland and left them crippled and with few strategic options. Nevertheless, the empire still had some fight left in it. The Japanese empire had amply demonstrated that it preferred suicidal combat to surrender, 
and it has recently come to light that the Empire had developed its own weapon of mass destruction, bubonic plague, and was ready to deploy it. The use of the bomb forced Japan's rulers to accept defeat and rendered unnecessary the planned American and Allied invasion of Japan, which arguably would have resulted in destruction and mass casualties dwarfing those caused by the bombs. It ended the bloodletting, permitted both sides to begin post-war healing and rebuilding, and moreover, the ending of the war with Japan brought to a close the widest and costliest conflict in human history, the Second World War. The effects of bringing that war to an end, with democracy sharing a significant part of the victory, were felt not only by the United States and Japan, but by every nation that had been drawn into that war and every other nation that had been affected by it. All these things can be put under the category direct effects of the dropping of the atom bomb. And yet there's something more that can and must be said about the effects of the bomb and of every true shattering event. The breaking of things. To speak of a shattering event implies that things are broken beyond repair and restoration to their former state. And the first thing that's broken is a people's sense of security. A shattering even makes people examine what they believe and question what they once trusted. It shakes power structures. It pushes true leaders forward, if any are there, and reveals pretenders for what they are, and they are always there. It creates new heroes, villains, and scapegoats. It alters the way people see themselves, both as individuals and as members of a society. It forces them to re-examine their value systems. A shattering event exposes all those things we casually suppose to be true and forces us to face them critically. Some of those assumptions and suppositions will be discarded, and new ones will take their place, while some assumptions may instead be strengthened as common convictions, as foundational axioms of society, for better or for worse. So, let's turn now specifically to examine 9-11 as a shattering event. It's in the nature of historical analysis that judgments rendered in the immediate aftermath of events tend to give way to revisions as temporal distance from them increases. Moreover, when an assessment of an event takes the form of, of an abstract concept, admittedly, there's a lot of room for subjective interpretation. It's hard enough to assemble the facts of what happened into a coherent narrative, let alone to be able to justify the meaning of that narrative. Uh, many still dispute the conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was alone the assassination who killed President Kennedy. And the meaning of that deed changes depending on the theory that you accept. Even so, evidence is abundant that this president's death and the manner of it affected the nation deeply and indelibly. In the same way, there are those who cannot accept the finding of the 9-11 Commission that Islamist terrorists are solely responsible for a coordinated attack on New York City and Washington. Nevertheless, there is abundant, if anecdotal, evidence that the 9-11 attack and its aftermath both triggered and embodied a landmark change in the United States and world history. This thesis doesn't depend on the specific outcome of any investigation into the event itself, it stands rather as a broader observation of how an event can signify issues beyond itself. Consider, first of all, that the date itself has become a signature for the event, 
a title for itself, a fact that is, if one thinks about it, unusual, if not unique. What other date announced by itself with no other amplification conjures up not only the memory of an event but also summons an immediate emotional response? July 4th? Yes, but that also has a title, Independence Day. July 14th, if you're en France. Hmm. Bastille Day. December 25th, not really. Our response to the date is secondary. It reminds us, Christmas. December 7th, perhaps for those who were alive and aware of events in 1941, but remember that President Roosevelt amplified the date with a declaration that it would live in infamy. No one pronounced such an imprecation on 9-11, nor did anyone have to. That numeric designation of a date, something to which we have become accustomed only in our age of digital information, is seared in the collective memory in our society in a way that stands by itself. Indeed, the date, to some extent, even became a cliché. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, some in public media annoyingly recited the date as 9-1-1 rather than 9-11, a play on the standard emergency telephone number. And that cliché then faded for a short time until left-wing filmmaker Michael Moore released his anti-war, anti-Bush diatribe, Fahrenheit 9-1-1, a title in mimicry of Ray Bradbury's famous futuristic novel Fahrenheit 451. Well, how did this date become so soon embedded in our national consciousness? I believe it's because of the profound depth of the shock that our nation experienced that day, which the rest of the world seemed to share in an unusual way. For those who were not around then or were too young to retain a memory, here are a few things that might give you some insight. The power and depth of the shock of that day is indicated by the fact I'm not being facetious here, that it was strong enough to make Americans do without the National Football League for a couple of weeks in 2001, and that was just when the season was gaining momentum. Again, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being facile here. Professional football is something akin to a national religion in the United States, not not to mention the love of money, which certainly rises to the level of idolatry in America. For the NFL to feel compelled to cancel one week of a season and postpone another one at the cost of multi-millions of dollars, well, that indicates more than just jitters about a potential terrorist attack on a crowded stadium. And it also indicates the sense of sobriety that fell upon our country. Suddenly, football and many other things that Americans pursue with great fervor appeared trivial. That sense of sobriety has long since faded, scarcely noticeable even on the anniversary of the attack. But pollsters were still finding its residue months after the attack. And during that same period, many things that Americans had taken for granted for years suddenly took on higher priority, patriotism being at the top of the list. Stores sold out of American flags within hours of the attack on September 11, 2001. And the red, white, and blue was flying everywhere one looked for weeks and months afterward. People lined up to give blood and money to the cause, although the cause was not really very well defined. And in the days and weeks following 9-11, 
enlistment for public service hit an all-time high, and young people in particular stepped forward to enter the armed services, the medical and teaching professions, even the CIA. There was a new sense of respect for the military that hadn't been seen since the Persian Gulf War. Really, probably not even since World War II. For a brief time, very brief, very brief, Congress paused from being a, an institution of quarreling Democrats and Republicans and acted like an institution of Americans. The nonpartisanship was probably talked about a whole lot longer than it lasted, but it really did happen, and it was extraordinary. The shock of 9-11 also had an immediate impact on individual lives throughout the land. People reconciled with relatives and friends who had been estranged. Those who could not be reconciled at least postponed their divorces, and the numbers of them were statistically significant. These are things that were reported at the time by the media. The national emergency also had a strange, although probably predictable, effect on the national libido. Major papers and magazines had feature articles to describe how people were turning to sex for comfort and reassurance in the time of crisis. It didn't even have to be with people that they knew or liked. On a darker note, the abortion provider Planned Parenthood by November was reporting a sharp increase in their business of terminating unwanted pregnancies, their term. Not all those pregnancies were unwanted, however. The U.S. did experience a mild baby boom in June and July of 2002. And not all the sex was reckless. People felt a stepped-up sense of urgency about their lives and either broke off relationships or made permanent commitments to marry or to remain single, to have children or to remain childless. All these things indicate the depth and breadth of the shock felt by the country in the wake of the terrorist attack. Then there was the national discussion. The watershed significance of 9-11 was shown even in the early days following in the national discussion regarding the event. I've compared 9-11 to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and I'm not the only or even the first one to draw the comparison. A Time magazine CNN poll in late 2001 revealed that two-thirds of Americans believed that the events of September 11th would define a generation the way the Kennedy assassination did. The National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago went further and compared the public response to 9-11 to the response to the assassination in 1963. The comparisons were interesting, perhaps revealing. In 1963, there was a greater feeling of depression and national shame as opposed to 2001 when there was a greater feeling of anger along with a surge of national pride. More interesting for the point that I'm making is that serious research began right away toward making this kind of comparison. Where sociologists begin, historians seem likely to follow. The national discussion during the extended aftermath, six to nine months after 9-11, also focused on the generation that was coming of age in the midst of these events. As a case in point, the cover story of the November 12, 2001 issue of Newsweek was entitled Generation 9-11. The story had some illuminating observations, noting, quote, It's too soon to tell whether 2001 will be like 1941, when campuses in the country were united, or 1966, the beginning of a historic rift. 
So far, there have only been scattered signs of nascent anti-war movement. Most students' views are in sync with the rest of the country. But students also understand that the future is increasingly unpredictable and that long-held beliefs and assumptions will be tested in the next few years. And as the article points out, before September 11th, American college students were remarkably insular. Careers were their major concern. It quotes a 24-year-old graduate student who makes this perceptive comment about his generation. We had no crisis, no Vietnam, no Martin Luther King Jr., no JFK. We've got it now. When we have kids and grandkids, we'll tell them that we lived in the roaring 90s when all we cared about was the number one movie or how many copies an album sold. This is where it all changes. The story goes on to say, Despite their perceived apathy and political inexperience, this generation may be uniquely qualified to understand the current battle. It quotes the president of the University of Pennsylvania who says, I think they realize more than the adults that this is a clash of cultures, something we haven't seen in a thousand years. A clash of cultures that we haven't seen in a thousand years. Hang on to that point. What I mean to point out here is that the national discussion about September 11, 2001 immediately began ascribing historical significance to it and continues to do so now, more than two decades later, although with considerably less intensity. Can there be any question about it? 9-11 became a central issue in American politics, social policy, and national self-image, and the effects of that have ongoing repercussions. President Barack Obama in his 9-11 memorial speech in 2009 and again in 2016, sought to minimize the martial and political associations America had with the date and to transform it into a memorial of sacrificial community service. In so doing, he illustrated how Americans continue to grapple with the implications of what took place on this day, along with the political and cultural shifts that had taken place in the first decade following the event. A hundred years from now, will 9-11-2001 still be considered a watershed event? Even at this point, I do not see how it can be otherwise. It brought to the fore fundamental, enduring conflicts between cultures and gave a clear signal that the 21st century would not be an age of peace, but a mortal struggle between worldviews, not merely between the West and radical Islam, but also between opposing worldviews within the West. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attack, all the focus shifted to the military and political response. The declaration of the war on terror, the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan to dispossess the al-Qaeda harboring Taliban, the more controversial invasion of Iraq under the supposed threat of weapons of mass destruction and its participation in an axis of evil, and passing of the Patriot Act and all the endless political contentions regarding both foreign and domestic policies that followed afterward. I'm not going to talk about any of these things because, although each of them is significant in its own right, they don't get to the heart of what I believe was shattered on 9-11 and what has moved in to take its place. What it was was a movement within a worldview, specifically the postmodernism that dominated modernity at the end of the 20th century. Yet many people still use the term postmodern to describe the present 
zeitgeist, the spirit of the time now. I don't believe that's so. My observation is that postmodernism has been completely replaced by a new movement, one that I call neo-modernism. What does that mean? It means that modernism is back with a vengeance. That's my second thesis. But to develop that idea, I'm going to need more time than I have left here. So stay tuned, and we'll return to it in a later podcast. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Dation. Thanks for tuning in.